good to be in the house, Lord. You can be seated. If you have your Bibles, if you'll turn to Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6, and uh, we're going to teach this morning on the whole armor of God. And we are living in a day and an age where we've got to have the armor. Amen. And I'm going to do my very best to get this done today. Uh, and if I don't, well, then we'll just finish it on another day. But uh, I, I know this is like, at one time, this was a at least a two-week lesson. But I've covered some of this recently, so I'll be able to skip through some of it. Ephesians 6, verse number 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. That's a mouthful. But we want to just share with you about being armed for battle. If the devil knows anything, he knows that in order for him to win, you will have to beat yourself. Okay, he, he can't beat you. He's already a defeated foe. So if he's going to win the battle, he's going to have to get you to beat yourself. He also knows that each one of us has the capability to beat ourselves in many different ways. And uh, if you noticed in verse 11, Paul used the word wiles, which simply means methods, tools, instruments, um, blueprints or plans, if you will. Uh, and so I believe that Satan has a personalized blueprint for the destruction of our lives. I, I believe that. I believe that he has, if, if he's the CEO, he has his bulletin board in his office and he's got it marked down. This is for this person. This is for that person. And uh, I, I believe that the plan includes disillusion of marriages, the rebellion of your children, the departure from faith. And although so you, we have to understand this point very strongly, Satan is not omniscient, which means all-knowing. He doesn't know everything. He thinks he does, but he doesn't. And he is not omnipotent or all-powerful. And let me add another one, he's not omnipresent. In other words, he's not present everywhere. He is a localized being. He can only be in one place at one time. Um, but having said that, he knows us sometimes even better than we know ourselves because he has watched us from a distance since our birth. And because he has, he knows us on an intimate level. He knows what plunges us into depression. He understands what paralyzes us with fear. Each, and in, each individual, I'm not just talking humanity in general, each individual, he knows what plunges us 
and paralyzes us, and he knows what entices us to fail. James, in his book, in chapter 1, verse 14, he said, Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Each one of us has a different measure, a different level, a different type of lust that we can get carried away with from time to time. Now, the interesting thing about this that most people don't understand is that the word enticed is a fishing term. It refers to catching fish. Now, I'm not much of a fisherman. I don't have the patience for it. I'm the kind of fisherman that will set the cane pole on the dock and read a book, and if the bobber goes down, then I'll maybe respond. That's the extent of my fishing. So I, I know that I'm not a fisherman, but I, I understand how fishing is supposed to work. Uh, the fisherman covers the hook with bait and attaches a lure to the end of his rod and reel and the line and drops it into the water. And hopefully the fish, blinded by its hunger, snaps the bait, not realizing that there is a concealed hook that's going to destroy him. And Satan is a master fisherman. He knows exactly what kind of bait to put on the hook to draw your attention. And like every expert fisherman, he knows to dangle the bait in front of you when you're the very hungriest. The good thing is, is that God in his infinite wisdom saw fit to prepare armor for us that allows us to stand up against the bait, to, re to restrain it, to keep it, repel it, to keep it away from us. He prepared an avenue or a direction or a way that allows us to protect ourselves from the onslaught of the fisherman, if you will, the enemy. And so I want to talk to you about this armor a little bit today. And uh, the first piece of armor is truth that covers your loins. This has a twofold purpose to it. Number one, it is designed to protect the most intimate parts of who we are. And second, it is designed to protect us uh, to protect our reproductive organs. It's, it, it's the truth. Now, we can say that all day long, but if you don't know what truth is, then what good is the armor? <laughs> and uh, truth is simply the knowledge of who Jesus is. John chapter 1, verse, I believe it's 18, says, Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. When Jesus reveals himself to you, you're having truth revealed to you if you know him the bible says you will uh truth will be revealed in you or the let me put it to you in the king james he whom the son has set free is free indeed you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free okay jesus is truth it's important to understand that everything that we do everything that we are everything that we think needs to be centered around jesus we can never allow ourselves to compromise the truth. We just can't do it. Now, we, I've heard that said my entire life. I was raised in church. I've been around church since probably before I under even stood what breathing was. But uh, I, I've never really understood or looked at the compromising of truth in the way I was taught. When you compromise truth, that means you're watering down the doctrine. You're watering down the word. You're saying you're, you're not making repentance key. You're not making baptism key. You're not making Holy Spirit key. Your, your, your lifestyle isn't key. You're watering it down. You're compromising. Has anybody ever heard that? 
The problem with that is that's not truth. That's our reaction to truth. We repent because we find out what truth is. We are baptized because we find out who truth is. We live our lives because, not because the Bible says a, gives us a laundry list of doing things, but we do it because Jesus has stepped into our life and we've started a relationship. So when I say that we can't compromise truth, uh, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth. So when we compromise what we're compromising with the truth, we're compromising Jesus. We're, we're, we're putting him at a disadvantage in our lives. Okay, it's the reason why we put on this piece of armor, the, the truth. We're putting on Jesus, and we can't allow him to become a disadvantage in our life. We have to add, it's like we're asking him to stand out in the cold. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad I know who you are, Lord, but you just stand over here, and I'm going to do my thing over here. Okay. Now you chuckle because that sounds absolutely insane. But how many of us do that? Because we've compromised or we've watered down the truth. You see, the most intimate thing in your life has to be Jesus. It can't be your spouse. It can't be your family. It can't be your job. It can't be your own very own life. It has to be Jesus. Because the most intimate thing is truth. And if there's anything that takes the place or fights for the place of that intimate relationship that you have with truth, you are exposing yourself to the attack of your enemy. Your loins or your most intimate part of you must be protected and covered by Jesus. Now, I think Paul realized that Satan would do everything he could possibly do to disrupt and destroy the intimacy that you have with the Lord. He was attempting to let the Ephesians uh, know that they must do all that they could to protect that intimacy with the Lord between them and the Lord. And we have to do this. We can't let our spouses, our kids, our friends, we can't let anything. We can't let the world, we can't let the, nothing can, we can't allow anything to push in to that intimacy of God. And then secondly, this piece of armor, Paul realizes that without growth, you die. Without growth, we die. If we stop growing, we start dying. It's plain and simple. I need to be growing when I turn 90. Okay? You never stop growing. You never stop learning. You never stop getting older. The 60-year-old just walked in the door. He timed it just perfect for me. <laughs> the moment that you stop growing is the moment that you start dying. And so without reproduction, your name ends. Paul knew that Satan would do everything he could to stop our reproducing. If you haven't influenced someone for Christ recently, or it's been a long time, could it be that you have exposed yourself to the enemy and your reproductive organs have been uh, attacked, have been stepped into, have been compromised by the enemy? I know that sounds crude almost, and I apologize if it seems that way, but Paul was saying this for a reason. 
he knew that any group of people or any movement or any church would eventually die if it ever stopped reproducing. And he was telling us that we must protect the reproduction cycles of, with truth, with him. Let me put it to you in King James Version. Some people plant, some people water, but God gives the increase. Okay? That means we have to continually plant and we have to continually water, but he's the one that gives the increase. If we're not planting and we're not watering, if we're not putting the truth around our reproductive cycles, what's really happening is God can't allow it to grow. I believe that the strongest and most effective way for our enemy to deter people in this last hour is the watering down of Jesus. Churches all across America are hurting today because they've stopped using truth to reproduce and to put it bluntly, they have begotten illegitimate children. Children that don't know the mercy and the grace of the Lord, all they know is the judgment of the Lord or vice versa, that there is no righteousness in Christ. He's just a wishy-washy person that loves you no matter what you do, and you don't need to change, and you don't need to grow, and you don't need to become more like him. My friend, there is a balance. I, one of these days I'm going to remember to look up the scripture before I come to church, but there is a scripture in Corinthians that says, Behold the goodness and the terribleness of God. There is a judgment of God, and there is a goodness of God. And we have to walk in between those, knowing that there's a day of judgment. The judgment of today was done on the cross. We have the mercy and grace of the Lord and the goodness. Of, but he's not a wishy-washy truth. He has all power in his hands. I want those of you that are new to the Lord to know that this is a church that is built on the foundation of Jesus. He's the chief cornerstone. And we will, as long as I'm around, Lord willing, we will not compromise it for numbers or power or money. We have placed a guard of truth upon all of our intimacy and all of our reproductive cycles. I don't want to draw a crowd. I want to draw a soul. I, don't, I can draw a crowd. I'll go find some stores that want to advertise, and they'll give me all kinds of goodies that I can just start advertising around the city. Come and get a free car. We're going to have a drawing for a free You know how many people would show up for a drawing for a free car? But I don't want to give away free cars. I want to give away Jesus. And I don't want to manipulate people to come to church to find a new car. I want them to come to this place knowing that they're looking for something to fill the emptiness of their soul. The second piece of armor that Paul admonishes us to put on is the breastplate of righteousness. This armor is that which protects our life-giving organs. Without the breastplate, we open ourselves up to the attack of the very organs that allow us to live. Our heart, our lungs, our liver, our kidneys are those organs that are most exposed by not wearing the breastplate of righteousness. Now, I taught a couple of weeks ago about what the heart does and the blood pumping through. Uh, so you can go to our, 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 our website and you can click on YouTube and 
looked for the message on the blood about a month ago, three weeks ago. So I'm not going to get into all of that because I want to be able to get this done. But the heart is the thing that pumps the blood to the rest of the body. The liver and the kidneys filter all of the junk that's in our bodies. Uh, our blood and, and the life-giving organs of our, of our bodily system uh, helps us to fight against infection. And, and it, it maintains the body temperature of, of who we are. And, and I believe that the, the breastplate of righteousness is key in a church in this day and hour where some churches get real hot and they burn up and some churches get real cold. But when the blood of Christ is pumped through, through the Holy Spirit, through the church, it regulates the temperature and makes us whole. And so that, that, those are our life-giving organs. And, 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 but I, my question today isn't about our organs. It's why righteousness? Why the breastplate of righteousness? Why not the breastplate of truth or the breastplate of love or any other characteristic that you can think of of the Lord? Since our filthiness, according to the Old Testament, is as filthy rags, it offers us no protection. It must refer to the righteousness that we receive at Calvary. And it is infinitely perfect righteousness, consisting of the obedience of Jesus and his sufferings. And it is by his sacrifice that we are found to be righteous. And that righteousness is put into us when we are born of him. If we tried to protect our life in the spirit and our life-giving organs on our own, we would miserably fail. Some of us probably have tried that. But with the righteousness of Christ, our breastplate becomes powerful. That death, hell, the grave can't mess with our life-giving organs. The breastplate of righteousness. The third piece is the sandal or are your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace now it's often said that peace is not the absence of trouble but the strength to pass through the trouble okay and i agree with that i have used that i have preached that and uh it's it's a fairly accurate statement but there's a little bit further that i want to take this today in biblical times Warfare was obviously not carried on with missiles that could travel thousands of miles. Okay? It was carried out in hand-to-hand -hand battle. I mean, the extent of distance was what a bow and an arrow could go or a slingshot or a spear could go. That, that's about the extent. Everything else was up close, hand-to-hand -hand battle. And what I believe that Paul is trying to say to us is that even though you stand in the middle of the battle, if you have prepared in the gospel of peace, you're going to stand strong. Now, peace in this passage is the Greek word Irene, E-I-R-E-N-E. -E. And it means this, a harmonized relationship between God and man. That's what peace means. The gospel of peace is not tranquility. Okay, it's not serenity. The gospel of peace is you have the opportunity to have a harmonized relationship between you and the Lord. The good news 
is the gospel. The gospel means good news. Well, the good news is that you can have harmony with the Lord. Now, I don't know what that does with you, but my household is a lot more peaceful, a lot more gentle, a lot more fun when she and I are in harmony. <laughs> but if we get out of harmony... Then people get grouchy. Then we're snapping at one another. Then we're having disagreements and discussions. You get what I'm talking about? And here's the thing. When are we most whole? When we're harmonized or not? When we're harmonized. And we're, when we're in harmony together, it doesn't matter what comes against our family we're standing strong. And Paul is trying to say, you can prepare your feet, the places that you go, where you have to stand, where God takes you and leads you into the battle that you're in. And if you're in harmony with him, you've got strength and power to withstand anything that the enemy brings on, on your way. You see, when your relationship is right with God, it doesn't matter what others think what others say, what others do, because you know exactly where you belong. And no matter what storm arises, what battle is raging, you have peace because you've already prepared to walk in harmony with Jesus. You see, the warriors of that day had no time to think once the battle began. They basically fought on instinct because things would move so fast and any step that they took could be their last one. And so Paul is telling us that when we go into battle, have your feet or your mode of transportation where God is taking you wrapped up in this harmonized relationship between you and Jesus. But you can't do that on the fly. The harmony has to come before you go into battle. One of the things that we do, because we do things backwards from the Lord <laughs> all the time, but what we do is we jump into a battle and then we try to harmonize with him. We do it all the time. That's our nature. That's our nature. And so what ends up happening is we get into trouble and our first response is, well, where are you, God? And he's up there trying to tell you, I was back here waiting for you. I wouldn't have taken you to this, this battle point. I was ready to fight this battle over here. If you would have listened to me, we would have gone in there. You wouldn't have had any problems. But because you didn't harmonize the preparation of the gospel of peace, you weren't prepared by being in harmony with me before you stepped into battle. Now you're expecting me to come and help you out of the battle that you got into that you should have never been into in the first place because you were out of harmony with me and you decided to fight a fight that you shouldn't have been fighting because I had the fight prepared over here. And if I've prepared the fight, I've already prepared the victory. So we have to step back from our struggles and say, okay, God, I messed that up. Let's get into harmony. Now, which direction do you want me to walk? It makes our storms and our battles so much different when we're in harmony with him. I believe that there are more people that would do a great deal of conquering if we just had confidence in the preparatory, the preparing stage. But we get so antsy because 
we have somewhere along the line got this mentality that we've got to be doing something. And I'll tell you where it comes from. It comes from misapplied preaching and teaching. Be ye a doer of the word and not a hearer only. And we preach, you've got to get out and do something for God. Okay? What we don't say is there's a prep time before you do something. Moses prepared for 80 years before he did anything. How many 80-year-olds do we have today? We've got two. So they're the only two that are fully prepared. You see, and in our mentality, we get to 62 and we start thinking retirement. And our mentality is, okay, after the first 60 years, I'm kind of done. I'm just going to kind of figure out how to take things easy. Listen, we've got things flipped upside down. We are in a pre- we've got too many 19 and 20-year-olds and 25-year-olds that are so consumed with trying to do something for God instead of getting prepared to do something for God. And I'm not talking Bible college. I was less prepared coming out of Bible college for the battle than I was in the battle. It's a personal thing. It's a, you know, I went to Bible school and I learned all about learning how to do the Word of God. Didn't have any idea how to trust the young person that had been abused before they came to youth. I learned that on the fly. Do you understand what I'm saying? We have to prepare with him before we step into the battle. I want to close that piece of armor with with two questions, well, with one two-part question. When God asks you to do something, do you believe that he trusts you? And if so... Whatever your answer is, if it's yes or no, if he asks you to do something, why don't you trust him? If your answer is yes, well then why haven't you moved out into it since you trust him? And if your answer is no, what's given you cause to not trust him? Most likely it's simply because we haven't prepared, we're not in harmony with God. Amen. The shield of faith. I'm going to get this done. The shield of faith. I'm looking at the time. I'm feeling good. The shield of faith is the next armament that Paul admonishes us to put on. It is the piece of armor that leads into battle. The warrior would carry the shield in front of him in order to protect him from the attack of the adversary. And likewise, Paul is saying that the first thing out in front of us should be our shield of faith. And again, the question is, why faith? Why not salvation? Why not righteousness? Why not peace? Why faith? And in order to answer that question, I want to define faith. The Greek word for it is pistis, or P-I-S-T-I-S. It generally means a firm persuasion or conviction based upon hearing from God. Let me, let me quote Romans 10 in the King James. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. 
It's not a candy stick that we have at our disposal to twist the arm of God to do something. How many have ever had heard this statement? Well, if you just have enough faith, you're going to be healed. Eh, no. Maybe, maybe not. He doesn't heal everybody. And your healing isn't regulated by your faith. It's regulated by what glory God wants to get. If it was regulated by faith, then the disciples were asking the correct question in John chapter 9 when he said, Who hath sinned, this man or his parents, because he had been born blind, raised blind, was now an adult that was still blind. And Jesus said it this way, mm, Neither one. He hasn't sinned. His parents hadn't sinned. That, that's not why he was born blind. In other words, whether they had faith or not, he was being born blind. And here's the reason why he was being born blind. So that the Lord would receive the glory. You don't know. So when you hear people say that, it's because they've taken scriptures out of context. Is there any sick among you? Let them call for the elders of the church. Let them lay hands on you in the name of the Lord, and they shall recover. Two things. The word sick doesn't mean sick. It means feeble or weak. It can mean physically or spiritually, or mentally or emotionally. It's not a disease. So when it says, is there any sick? Is there any weak among you? Is there any struggling among you? Is there any emotionally distraught among you? Let them call for the, and they shall recover. It doesn't say they shall be healed. It says they shall recovered. And the Bible says, for by his stripes we are healed. Can I tell you that every single one of us that have any kind of a disease or sickness, there's coming a day when we will be healed? My dad died of cancer, pancreatic cancer. But on that morning in February of 2012, he was healed. The founding pastors of this church, Gary and Lil Weisbrot, both had cancer. They died. They weren't healed. We prayed for their healing. Why weren't they healed? They were healed. They just weren't healed the way we expected or wanted them to be healed. But I can just tell you, there's no more cancer in them. And I would dare say, if I had the spine of Lil Weisbrot, I would have said, I don't ever want to go back to that place. I'm good where I'm at. <laughs> I'm in glory. You see, we, we earthenize, if you will. That's my term. Everything about the miraculous. And if God doesn't do it now, he's not doing it. Can I tell you, just because he's not doing it now doesn't mean he's not doing it. True faith is made up of three parts. A firm conviction producing a full acknowledgement of God's revelation or truth. In other words, when God speaks or reveals something to someone, we must believe so strongly in it that we begin to produce whatever it is that he has revealed. That's Hebrews 11.1. 1. When he speaks, for faith comes by hearing, hearing by the when we receive something from God... We need to grab a hold of it and believe it so strongly that it produces in our life that which he has spoken. Okay? Number two, faith is a personal surrender to him. We find this in, in John 1, 12. 
In other words, our faith is evident only when we surrender our will to his. To them that believe, to them gave he power to become the children of the Lord. Born of the Spirit, not of the will of man, nor of the will of flesh, nor of blood or of bone, but of God. And then the third thing is faith is a conduct inspired by that surrender. Okay? So faith, let me put that into my language. It sounds really nice when it's faith is conduct inspired by that surrender. Faith is doing something that doesn't make sense, even though God said it. It doesn't make sense to do some things that God says because his ways are above ours. His thoughts are above ours. And sometimes, let me just put it to you this way. Does it make sense to raise your hands or look like a fool in worship? Does it make sense for me to preach the way that I preach and holler and spit and sweat and no, it doesn't make sense to do that, but it's effective. It's the way God has asked me to do things. It's the way God has asked you to do things. And our faith is our actions based off of what he has asked us to do. So the shield up of faith is made up of the revelation of God for a particular battle, surrender to his will, and an attitude that is totally trusting in what God is doing. And so Satan knows that he wins if he can ever get us to stop listening to God, following his will, and living in his will. Because that removes the shield and opens us wide open for the attack of the enemy. And he knows the easiest way to do that is to get us to question the voice of God. How many have ever wondered, God, is that really you? Or is that the pizza that I ate two hours ago? Is that just me dreaming or is that you speaking? God, I can't quite understand what you're saying. We all question the voice of the Lord. But if he can get us to, if you read Genesis 3, 1 through 5, you'll see that the serpent asks Eve a question that is only slightly different from what God actually said. In fact, only three words, I think, in the King James. God had told Adam they could eat from any tree but one. And Satan turned it around on Eve and got Eve to focus not on all that they could enjoy, but the one thing that was forbidden. And Eve followed after the serpent and left the will of God because they, she didn't recognize the different voice. And the reason I believe that Adam... The Bible says sin came by Adam was because Adam obviously hadn't taught Eve because Eve wasn't around when God told Adam what he could and couldn't do. Likewise, Satan is still trying to attack the fiery, with the fiery darts, attempting us, attempting to get us to walk away from God's will. And it's only when we walk away that our faith has failed. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. As long as you listen to the word, it's the reason why daily reading of the word, whether you understand it or not, is so important because you are building up a shield. Listen, nobody can read the genealogies. 
But when you do, you're building a shield because you're activating the word of the Lord. Sometimes in the office in the morning when I'm doing my devotions, I don't even just read quietly. I read it out to my father-in-law taught me. He used to read his scriptures out loud. He said, because I learn them better. (laughs) But more importantly than that, it builds better. So as as you're reading the word of the Lord, whether you understand what you're reading or not, now don't get me wrong, the, the Proverbs challenges us to get understanding and to get wisdom, but just because you're reading something and don't understand it or aren't getting wisdom from it doesn't mean it's not doing you any good. Okay? I'm required because of my health issues to take an 81 gram of baby aspirin every morning. It does not make sense that this body can get away with that little pill. It doesn't. But somewhere along the line, some doctor has figured out that it helps build up my system for my circulation. So I'm going to take that little piece of aspirin every morning. I'm going to take a little bit of the Bible every morning. Whether I know what it's doing in me or doesn't, it's helping me. It's building my faith. Look at that. I got to part two. I got 20 minutes. This was the second class. I'm going to, verses 17 and 18, I'm going to kind of flip a little bit because I need to address the concept of prayer before I talk about the helmet and the sword. And so I want to talk a little bit. Verse 18 is the thing that holds the entire armor together. If we fail in this verse, we allow the strength of the armor to fail. You see, prayer is the connector, if you will, to the belt of truth, the shield of faith, the sandals of peace, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the... Without it, we can never hold the armor together. Okay? Now, the scripture allows us to see a twofold meaning of what prayer should be in battle. First of all, the Bible says praying with all prayer in verse... It says praying always with all prayer. Praying always with all prayer and supplication. Well, that first phrase, praying with all prayer, means that our lives must be compassed about with the attitude and the heartbeat of communion with God. Let me put it to you the way Paul said it to the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians must not have understood as well as the Ephesians. He just said it this way, pray without ceasing. Didn't explain it. But praying with all prayer is the same as saying praying without ceasing. Paul understood, I'm sure, that we're all human, that we all live in a a 24-hour-a-day cycle, that we would be impossible for us to be down on our knees in prayer the entire time. It is possible, however, to faithfully have an attitude of communion with the Lord. In fact, the biblical word for behavior in the New Testament is the word conversation. Your behavior is your conversation or your communion with Jesus. So as you behave according to the word of the Lord, you are praying with all prayer. I know that scares some of you because some of you know your behavior. But that's all right. He understands your behavior too. And he still wants you to work on it. And he still wants me to work on it. 
Our daily behavior is what the apostle is referring to when he says prayer with all prayer. Our lifestyle must be that which directs communion to him. There was a huge fad how many ever years ago, what would Jesus do? And it became a trend. But the question is really good. What would Jesus do? If we started living our lives uh, fully accomplishing Proverbs 3, 6, our lives would be so much better. Proverbs 3, 6 says this, acknowledge him in all your ways. Let me ask you, when was the last time you acknowledged him? When you were deciding between Burger King and McDonald's. I know that sounds trivial, but the Bible is, uses the word all. The word all in Hebrew, in Aramaic, in Greek means the exact same thing. All. I know that's profound. It's the one time English got it right. In all your ways, we tend to acknowledge him in the big things. We tend to, well, I'm, I'm making this life decision. God, help me make the right decision for this job or that job or this promotion, that promotion, this car, that, this house, this spouse, this, whatever it is. We, 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 we understand we need to acknowledge him in all the big things. But when was the last time you stopped in the grocery store and said, okay, Lord, is it Crest or Colgate? I, I know that sounds funny. I, I, it sounds almost ridiculous. But I'm not the one that said it. Proverbs tells us, in all your ways. Can I tell you, if you start praying over your toothpaste, you may get the wrong toothpaste still. But you're communing with him. Your behavior is saying, God, I'm acknowledging you. I'm acknowledging you as I pull into the gas station. I'm acknowledging you as I pull into the neighborhood. I'm acknowledging you as I choose the wardrobe that I'm going to wear that day. I'm acknowledging you in all things because, God, I want you involved in all things. Okay. If you don't believe me, let me give you the King James Version that Paul uses in Romans. He said this, walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh. If you're following the Spirit, you're in communion with Him. You're acknowledging him in all your ways. Now, please don't walk away from here thinking that pastor said that you have to deliberate every single decision that you're making. I hope you're catching the picture that it's not about you standing. I don't want people standing in the, in the grocery store aisle today thinking, okay, do I get hot dog buns or hamburger buns? I hope you're getting the principle that is basically saying, I'm going to acknowledge you, Lord, that I'm actually in the grocery store, that I have the ability to provide the needs for my meal. Okay, do, do you see what I'm saying? Our lifestyle is prayer on all occasions to him. And then Paul goes on and he differentiates the aspect of prayer and supplication in order for us to realize that it's not our behavior alone, but it's how we ask for something specific from God. Our prayers, our behavior, and our supplications in the Spirit. If you're taking notes, if you're writing in your Bible like I do, underline that. It's in this, your behavior and your supplications in the Spirit. 
Now, I can pray for all kinds of things. I can ask supplication for all kinds of things, but some of the things that I'm going to ask for aren't in the Spirit. Because in the Spirit means I've aligned myself to Him before I've asked. You see, it says our, uh, our supplications will only mean something when we first find the mind of the Spirit in order for our supplications to be accurate. Let me put it to you a different way. Jesus said that we ask and we don't receive because we ask amiss. The only way we can ask amiss if we're, is if we're not praying in the Spirit. Because if the Spirit is propelling our prayers, He already knows what we're asking. And He's telling us, pray this because I've already got the answer for you. And so you'll never, so when the Bible says, ask what you will and you're going to receive it, that means you're asking the right way in the Spirit. You're not asking amiss. And Jesus is basically telling you that when you begin to pray the way I'm asking you to pray, I've already got the answer ready for you. I just need you to acknowledge it. Our flesh will only ask for things that may or may not be good for us. God, I could really use that new car. Yeah? And then when he gives us a bike, we think not a motorcycle, a bike. We think he hasn't answered our prayer. And what we're really doing is we're, we're, not, we're failing to realize that what we're actually praying for is what God filters is I need transportation. And when we start praying for that, God, now you know that I like this kind of a car, but I just, I need to have this transportation. Then he's not going to answer with a bike. He's going to give you transportation. You see the difference? We like to get things our way because we're selfish. I know, no, I'm not selfish. Yeah, we're all selfish. We all want what's best for us. It's the reason I don't eat liver and onions. It may be good for me, but it ain't going in this mouth. No, sir. Brussels sprouts, never again. My wife tried. Can't do it. I don't like beets either, and they're good for you. I think my beet issue is not the taste, it's not the texture, it's the memory. Because we lived in Albert Lee for a year when I was in seventh grade, and my dad would come up to the Twin Cities, and he would live with my grandmother and have, my grandmother was a phenomenal cook. And so every night he was having these big smorgasbords of meals, and we were having whatever the neighbor could bring us. And so it was either hot Spanish food Or beets. The beets came from my aunt. Well, I've been canning these, and so one day we, we're going to eat them. And you're going to eat them because it's the only thing that's on the table. So all the kids are doing that. And we look, and at the foot of the chair by my dad was dropping it down to the dog. And the dog wouldn't even eat them. We never let him live it down because he was going to grandma's to get a good meal the next day. No bitterness there, but I don't eat beets. You see, I can ask for a lot of things. But if it's not in the Spirit, if it's not what God wants, 
if it's not what God... Because here's the thing. You don't even know what's good for you next week. And you may pray for a job promotion, but that job promotion is a bad thing, so God doesn't give it to you. It's not that he said he didn't answer your prayer. He just said, no, I've got something different or better for you when we ask in the Spirit. James 5.16, he references the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. If you study that out in the Greek, though, what that statement really means is to align our will to his will. The effectual fervency is the aligning of my will to his. So when my will is aligned to his will, anything I ask is going to get done because it's his will. Another verse that we misquote or misunderstand, delight thyself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. That doesn't mean he's going to, if you just worship a little bit and you delight in him and you seek after him, it doesn't mean he's going to give you what you want. What it means is he's going to put in you the desires of your heart so that when you start desiring things, if you're in his spirit and in his will, those desires are going to come to pass because they're his. He put them there. That's what it means to be in prayer all the time. That's why our behavior, that's why what we ask, when, our, when we get this understanding that it's all in the Spirit and through what God is doing in us, our prayers become powerful. So it's important that we live and pray and send up supplications based off of the direction of the Holy Ghost. I want to talk to you now about the sword or the Word of God. And I want you to notice first that this is the only offensive weapon of Ephesians 6. It's the only one. The only offensive tool that he gives us is his word. It's not our fancy speech. It's not our physical strength. In fact, it's not the truth, the faith, salvation, prayer, or peace. It's his word. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints of the marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It's because that's the only weapon. That's why Bible study is so important and so powerful. Because that word is the only offensive weapon that cuts to the core of your enemy. We can have all of the testimonies, and don't misunderstand me, I'm thankful for them. I'm thankful for all of the different speeches and the sermons and all of that, but when it right come, comes right down to it, the most effective thing that we have in our contact with God's Word, and when we understand, it's the reason why when we get revelation, boom, it just blows our minds. Why? Because it's giving us a brand new tool, a brand new instrument. Notice that you cannot have faith until you have God's Word. Again, there's nowhere in here that says you have to understand God's Word. You just have to have it. You cannot have peace until He speaks it. You cannot have power till it speaks through you. Remember, Luke said in Acts chapter 1, you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And the same writer wrote just a few verses later that the evidence of the Holy Ghost was a spirit speaking in a different language. And so you see, as God speaks through you, you reveal the power of the Spirit. It's not by might nor by power, but my, my spirit, says the Lord. The writer Luke was not foreign to the power of God by the spoken word. I believe his knowledge in Acts was predicated upon his writing in Luke 4. 
If you read Luke 4, and I've quoted this or mentioned this recently, but it says that Jesus went out into the wilderness full of the Holy Ghost, but 14 verses later, it says he came back in the power of the Holy Ghost. What makes you full of the Holy Ghost? The Holy Ghost. What makes you power in the Holy Ghost? It's what you do with the Word. When Jesus was tempted, he said simply when the adversary began to tempt him, he said, no, thus it is written... No, you want to become an overcomer. Learn the word. Find the word. If you don't know, ask somebody. Because when the devil comes knocking at your door, it's not enough just to say no. Nancy Reagan was good, just say no. But that's not enough. You can't just say no. You begin to quote the word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. What we also don't understand is that a few verses later in verse 32 of Luke 4, Jesus begins to talk and the Bible says that his doctrine astonished, doctrine is just teaching, his teaching astonished those in Capernaum. Why? Because the word has power. And when the word is united with the spirit, you've got spiritual power and word power. So how do we go from babble to words with power? How do we go from suffering attack from the enemy to astonishing others with our teaching? It happens the same way it did for Jesus when we activate the word of God in our lives. I I need to just stop here for just a second because this is the only offensive weapon that gives power to the soldier. And and then I'm going to be done in just a second. It's very important for you to read the word where you need the battle to be won. If you're struggling with your kids, go into their bedroom and start reading. I don't care what it is. Well, what chapter should I read? Just pick one. Just start reading it. Ask God to direct you. He'll he'll direct you to the right spirit or to the right scripture. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You're in the midst of needing provision? Start reading it aloud. Because what you're really doing, I wish Paul Raschke was here. They're, they're not feeling well this weekend. But I, may the force be with you. I need provision. Here it is. Let me go to battle. My God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or even think. Bam. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am worth something. I am a royal priesthood. I am a chosen generation. I am, I am, I am. Praise God. I invite you to stand. Some of you critical people are saying, well, you didn't deal with the helmet of salvation. I did. I spent the whole weekend. Trish and I taught for hours a couple of weekends. Go watch the Chainbreaker Conference on our webpage, and you'll see all about the helmet. It's all about the brain. 
You'll, you'll, you'll catch that when you go watch that. Listen, we're in a battle, but he has armed us. And he has challenged us to do two things. Number one, stand. He doesn't say attack. He doesn't say forward. He doesn't say charge. He says stand and pray with all prayer and supplication. Put everything else around you. You stand there and you pray and you quote the word of God. Can I tell you that you are more dangerous when you're in your prayer closet standing and beginning to read the word of God and to pray the word of God and to, and to reach out to him than you ever are walking the streets trying to find somebody? Why? Because you're in preparation. You step out of your closet. You don't have to go look for somebody. God's going to send somebody to you. And you'll begin to talk to them and share the word with them. Jesus, thank you for your goodness and your mercy today. Thank you for this time that we've had together in Sunday school hour. I'm thankful, God, that the kids have been able to draw closer to you in this day, in this hour. I'm thankful that we as adults can draw from your word. I'm asking you now, Lord Jesus, to let the blessings of the Lord rest upon us. Take us into this second service, God, into our worship, and let the anointing of God. I come against everything that would cause distraction, everything that would be an obstacle for your spirit. Lord, I cleanse the temple right now by the authority of the word of God so that you have free reign and full reign in this house. We be careful to give you praise and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen.